Welcome to episode 18 of the Professional Balance bonus content series of the Saturday Morning Hustle podcast. Today we'll discuss balancing what the market wants and demands versus disruption in product development. Henry Ford has often attributed the quote, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, in reference to building the first mass-produced automobile. If Ford had given the market what it wanted, we might not have the transportation and manufacturing technological advances that came from Ford ignoring the demands of the public and building cars for the masses. He was an original disruptor. But this is most often not the case. Not every idea is viable and not every disruption is embraced. Giving that people what they want is a solid business plan, but innovation comes from breaking rules and forging new paths. How do we find a balanced approach? This long-form audio podcast is posted once a month as an opportunity to dive deep into the issues that challenge all entrepreneurs, business owners, career builders, and decision makers. How do we balance what seem to be contradictory viewpoints in business and personal life? More than just work-life balance, we examine a variety of this or that scenarios. Let's get started. Market demand, unmet needs, market fit, disruption. How do you know what's the proper fit? Let's start right at the top with market demand. The first idea about how to fill market demand and provide a product or service that is thus in demand and can become a profitable enterprise typically starts with the idea of easing someone's pain, whether that pain be literal or figurative, but by providing a solution to a problem. Easing pain is the reality of what it is your product or service offers to your audience. Typically, is described as something that is better, faster, stronger, or has easier access or, access or lower cost. These are the typical requirements for something to be considered filling a market demand. The other way you can fill market demand is offer the perception of luxury. Often luxury brands are considered that way because of the brand image and the brand design and style as much or more than the product or service itself. So, yes, Rolexes and Cadillacs and Mercedes and other high-value brands are of quality manufacture. The product actually does what it says and has a quality to the production of it. But the perception, the cost association, and the other value perceptions that come with it is more viable and valuable when it comes to a luxury product. So the two ways that you can enter the market and provide something that consumers are looking for is to solve a problem or ease a pain. Again, providing something that gets bigger, faster, stronger, easier access, or have a different cost. These are differentiations something that sets your product apart from your competitors, or offer a luxury perception, something that people feel that they will present themselves in a certain way, as a certain lifestyle, as a certain status, by having your product or engaging in your service. These are the two ways that you can enter a market via market demand. And again, the difference here is that word, difference or differentiation. Setting your product apart or service because it is similar enough 
that the consumer understands what it is, what it does, the pain that it eases, or the, the problem that it solves, the benefit that's provided from a very similar product or service with enough differentiation in your offering that makes it more attractive than other options in the market. Simple market fulfillment with differentiation. The key to marketing and selling a product or service like this is establishing and explaining the differentiation. This is how you win, if you will, or create sales or create opportunities in a market with high demand is provide what the audience is looking for with differentiation and then explain that differentiation clearly enough to attract the right audience who wants that product or service with that differentiation. They value that more than something else in the market and they're willing to transact with you instead of them. The other option is to provide luxury. When a product or service is offered as a luxury perception, it's not about creating a differentiation in your offering for the value of solving a problem or easing a pain, but instead presenting an opportunity for a value proposition based on the perception of the product or service and how it relates to you and your lifestyle. So again, luxury things like automobiles, jewelry, other houses, other things that people can see and know that you engage in and understand the cost associated with it, thus understand your position or station in life with your ability to afford that product or service. These are trips, these are homes, these are jewelry, these are automobiles, these are things that are outside the needs, basic needs and the easement of basic pains, but instead are elevations, upgrades of a product or service. It is possible to disrupt that space if you can create a marketing strategy or a brand image that allows you to enter the marketplace and automatically be seen or perceived as of luxury or of value. It's harder to do based on the merits of your product or service. So that is more of a marketing play, less of a product development play. So now that you're talking about market needs, there are also unmet needs, things that are not available or not exactly available in the market. So again, it could be a similar product or service that already exists with a major difference in options, function, etc. That makes it different than simply a simple differentiation, but being a major differentiation. This would be the difference between vehicles that can carry six people versus vehicles that can carry eight people or 10 people. Vehicles that can tow a small boat versus vehicles that can tow a large trailer. TVs that are over 80 inches versus TVs below 80 inches. Screens that are 4K or above, 6K even, and things of that nature, surround sound. Things that are similar in their function but do not rise to equal are often unmet needs in the market. But this needs to be even more clearly defined and even more clearly informed through your marketing and advertising efforts. 
So unmet needs, though, is an opportunity. So meet market demand or meet unmet needs in order to create a market fit. This is where your product or service fits into the market. It's often having to be related to your positioning in the market. This should be natural, something that makes sense for the product or service that you developed, not that you develop a product or service to fit market need. Not, not market fit should be natural. It should be driven by the product or service itself. This also can be expansion into new consumers if you originally were a certain age bracket, a certain demographic, and in being able to expand a bond, a, beyond them because of performance options, et cetera, or going into new markets or new places or new delivery methods, et cetera, that you didn't have previously. So a great example of this will be a regional brand, maybe something that was only sold in the Midwest or on the East Coast or West Coast that then becomes available in a place it hadn't before. That is how you find new and different markets and expand the potential for market fit. Or you can attempt to force market fit. You can attempt to use marketing or other tactics in order to convince your audience that what you're offering them is what they're looking for. This is the least likely to be successful and the one I would recommend the least as well. But plenty of people do try to force their way into a market and think of it as innovation. The innovation comes from the product or design or the service offering. The innovation most definitely can't, one in a million can, but typically can't come from a marketing tactic that is outside the norm enough to be successful because if it gets outside of traditional marketing, and we're talking about innovation versus traditional market scope, if it's so far outside the norm, it typically is associated with lack of ethics or something else that is non-trustworthy. So forcing your way into a market via marketing tactics is very often disapproved of by consumers. So how do you know if you should offer something similar to what's in the market with clear differentiation? Or if you should disrupt that market and provide something brand new in a brand new way. We'll begin by asking the market what it is they want. Going back to the Ford quote, if I'd asked people what they wanted, well, the second half of that quote is they would have said faster horses. So you listen to that feedback. You ask the question and then you listen, but then you test these answers versus the reality of the market. Were people paying more for faster horses? Could they afford faster horses? Were there ways to create faster horses? Because what they were asking for may not be obtainable. Was it sustainable? Was, was it a business model that could be repeated, etc.? Or proven? Could you prove you had a faster horse? These are things that you can test feedback from your audience. So you ask and listen, but then test that feedback. You begin by iterating off of the idea of what it is they want. They say they want faster horses. How do we achieve that? Begins the conversation that could end up in how we achieve faster horses, thus giving the market what they want, what it wants. Thus market demand is driven your decision-making process, but it also could come from 
asking enough questions about, is this sustainable? Is this repeatable? Is this something we can prove within the market that would then force you into a different set of questions about if not faster horses, maybe it's an automobile or some other mechanical feature, which is what led Ford to his decision-making process. So now that you've done this, you potentially have the opportunity for disruption. But is it truly disruptive or is it simply a differentiation that you are overestimating? We discussed differentiation earlier. These are other options. Is the thing that you think is disruptive simply another option? Is it a variation of what's on the market? If so, it's fine, but you need to follow the path of explaining your differentiation with your marketing strategy as opposed to presenting yourself as disruptive. You also can't be disruptive in exactly the same way someone else is disruptive. This is often called the Tom's shoe model. Tom's shoes were the first ones to present buy one, we'll give one to charity, followed closely by Warby Parker and several other brands. And now multiple years later into that business model, many people are in entering industries and telling their industry they're disrupting it by presenting the Tom's model of buy one, give one. That's not disruptive. You've taken someone else's idea and just applied it to a different market. You've created differentiation, but you're not being disruptive. You have to truly innovate, not sort of innovate. Sort of innovation is, again, adapting someone else's idea, someone else's business model, something that the audience and the public is comfortable with, and putting it into maybe a subset, a market category, a product category that hadn't utilized it before. But you aren't doing something radically different that's going to break the mold and be truly innovative. You're simply copying other people's innovation and applying it to your segment, which is pseudo-innovation, not true innovation. It's also something I see on a very regular basis where people discuss that they're being innovative, they're being disruptive, and they're really not. They're overestimating their disruption capabilities and instead trying to use it as a marketing tactic or ploy as opposed to, A, either truly being innovative and creating something unique and different enough to stand apart wholly, or B, creating something of quality and value, et cetera, explained your differentiation well enough so that you could compete by finding a position in the industry. So don't fall into the trap of innovation for innovation's sake. Do not do things simply because it's cool or you're the new, the newest option or the first to do it, etc. Being cool is not innovation. Innovation is often cool. Cool things come from innovation. But simply because something is a cool feature, a new feature, simply because you're the first one to do something doesn't make it innovative. You have to be new. You have to be first at doing something better than the previous options. This is the difference between simply being new, simply being first, simply being cool, and actually being innovative. Innovation and disruption comes from actual differences in the product or service development, in the delivery method, 
in the behavior of the consumer because of your disruption. That's how far your disruption and innovation needs to go in order to be considered truly disruptive. If it's a variation of what exists in the market, if it's a small mindset, if it's a difference in explaining your differentiation, it's just that, explaining your differentiation. If it's a paradigm shift into how things have not been done in the, previously and the benefits that come with it with the acceptance of the audience, now you're disrupting the market. Also has to have some sort of scale. Disruption at 0.1% is worthless because you haven't actually disrupted anything. You've just simply found a niche which to compete in. Even disruption at 1% or 5% at 10% is still not disruptive. Innovative, yes. Disruptive, no. But once you get over 10%, get into the 20 to 25% range, get into where you start affecting market share and the competitive nature of your industry, you have the potential to be truly disruptive. So new and innovative is necessary, but being disruptive has to come from your actual execution and the effect on the market in order to change the market as a whole. Not being cool, not being new or first, but actually disrupting your industry. The changes in product and services category industries or entire marketplace is the key to deciding if you're being disruptive or not. Great examples of this are, of course, social media. Social media has changed the way that we communicate with each other for good or bad. Definitely multiple times over and in huge paradigm shifts from previous personal and interpersonal communications. Smart devices such as your smartphone, tablets, even cameras and portable video equipment, portable audio recording equipment, all of the things I'm using to produce this podcast today, all of the technology to deliver it to you, whether you listen to it on your phone, listen to it in your car via connection to the internet, a social media, or app some other mobile technology, et cetera. These are all things that truly disrupted how we participate in our life, in our collection of information, how we communicate with each other. And those disruptions were true disruptions, not just to a product or service category, not simply to phones or to cameras or to entertainment, but entire industries and entire marketplaces. There are marketplaces that are created today based on your ability to download a product or service or instructions or other file type on a mobile device, on a smart device. There are entire industries and business opportunities created around social media platforms, social media influencers, collaborative efforts, video production, audio production, podcasts themselves. Podcast did not exist at a certain point in our very recent history. This process here, this program here, the way we're communicating together right now did not always exist. It did exist in a completely different format and a completely different value offering to the consumers. It's called talk radio or recordings such as 
albums, original eight tracks, cassettes, CDs, etc., into a streaming process and then a completely dirt, completely digital, completely virtual, and associated with a mobile device or other smart technology. These are complete disruptions in the marketplace. Of course, other disruptors that you're aware of. Postmates, Uber, Airbnb, etc. Things that completely changed industries and forced entire markets to adapt and adopt at least some of these functions and features, if not wholly, to the disruption itself. These are the things people think about when they attempt to disrupt but often fall short because they're not disrupting or being truly innovative. They're just simply offering what's already in the market with a differentiation. So people that are true innovators, true disruptors, we talked about Ford earlier. He mass-produced at a lower cost in order to create vehicles that were obtainable. It wasn't that vehicles did not exist before Ford. Motorized mechanical vehicles did exist before Ford. They were very unobtainable for the mass market. Thus, it was a luxury item and only obtainable by the highest of the elite social classes. Mass market at affordable rate is what Ford developed with his assembly line method, which was an initial innovation and disruption to the market, to the industry, the lowering of cost and the creating of accessibility and the ability to produce more than one at a time in order to fill demand. So created and filled demand, not just with the fact it was a motorized vehicle, which was an alternative to the faster horse, or in this case, the alternative to a not as fast horse. Original vehicles were not faster than horses, but they were a different option than horses. It wasn't something you had to feed when you weren't riding it. You didn't have to keep it watered. You did not have to protect it from predators or old age the same way that you do horses or other animals that were ridden for transportation. But Ford also innovated himself into a corner because in order for his assembly line to work correctly, to be effective and efficient enough to keep the cost down in order to provide the original Ford vehicle at a price that the mass market could support, there were no options. There were no opportunities to do different things with the vehicle or make changes based on the performance. So to make it faster, to make it stronger, to make it lighter, to make it handle terrain better, all of these things required them to simply, essentially break their assembly line or make enough changes in order to be able to adapt that then actually added cost and time back to the process. This is one of the reasons Ford is also attributed with quoting. You could say you could get it in any color as long as it's black. The simplicity of the assembly line was innovation, but it was actually a trap as well because the innovation stalled out, automotive pun intended, after the initial assembly line innovation because the actual idea itself kept innovation from moving forward. Of course, eventually Ford figured that out as well. But he was understanding that even though he was told people wanted a faster horse, 
what they really were saying that they wanted a dependable vehicle that was affordable and had options. Differentiation. So Ford asked, he listened, he tested the hypothesis and then found a way in order to deliver what people were really asking for. They weren't asking for faster horses. They were asking for reliable transportation that was affordable and obtainable to the common man. Another great innovator is Elon Musk. There's a lot of talk about him in the media and social media these days, but remember where Elon got started. Elon's original mission was to change attitudes towards things like online banking, solar power, and even electric cars. These were not business models Elon developed with expectation of high success for the actual model. He wanted to disrupt the industry. He wanted people to have options and thoughts about things like online banking, electric cars, and solar power for their, for their home or office that were previously very negative. He wanted to change those perceptions because then the technological advances that would come with it would be beneficial to the market, would spur innovation through disruption. Now, these entities happen to be profitable, although there's talk that maybe Tesla ends up going through bankruptcy, not that they will stop producing cars, but reconfigure through bankruptcy in order to be remain competitive and attempt to lower some of their cost. And that's not a failure on Musk and his team, a leadership team's fault. It's more of a corporate process, much more difficult and tedious than we're going to get into in today's conversation. But Elon Musk absolutely disrupted online banking, solar power, and electric car industries. He's also disrupted the rocket industry with SpaceX, things that were only done by state-sponsored organizations such as NASA or other international organizations are now being done privately through the innovations created through SpaceX, through the technology advances, etc. I don't know much about rocketeering. It's not something that I follow very much, but watching the SpaceX rockets two at a time leave into orbit and then return to the launch pad simultaneously with split-second precision is very impressive, and it goes to the idea that when people say it can't be done, you can disrupt that concept, you can disrupt that idea, and you can change entire industries if you can prove your theory that it can be done. Most people don't prove that theory. And basing a business model, which then bases the risk of starting um, operating a business, capital, time, reputation, otherwise, is often not a smart move. It's also why we can name innovators off one hand and we pay so much attention to actual disruptors because the success of disruption is typically very rare, often called unicorns as well. So other ways to disrupt can be through the use of new technology or through the changes in society. How can changes in society present opportunities for disruption? Now, technology sounds like a simple idea. We can disrupt the film and film industry because we have portable, first portable cameras, 
and then smartphones and other smaller, more portable devices. But the truth is that that technology change was driven by adult content. You know what I'm talking about. Triple X movies and other adult content were often the drivers for technological advances, for video cameras to go from from actual film cameras to video cameras. The greatest consumer of the initial video cameras were people that were producing adult content because it was cheaper, easier to produce, and easier to manage than film. The reason adult films stopped being films and became VHS videos was because the cost of the video cameras and the recording devices themselves were lower and the film itself lower than film. Once that industry embraced video cameras for production and then making the actual product itself, the film or movie, if you will, on VHS, then prompted consumers to buy VHS players in order to consume that, in the, that content in the privacy of their own homes as opposed to going to film theaters. So adult theaters were faded out, but VHS was propped up by video cameras being the preferred choice of adult filmmakers. Eventually, adult filmmakers embraced digital digitization of their films from VHS to a digital format to digital storage, which is how we've gotten certain increases in storage devices. The reason you can buy a multi-terabyte portable hard drive these days is because at some point, digital filmmakers making adult content were asking for, demanding, and willing to pay for portable storage devices that were bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, the same professionals, if you will, were demanding better video formats so they could stream their product online and avoid the VHS or DVD production process. Internet video streaming is directly related to the adult video industry. The membership model versus product sales is also a shift that came from the adult film industry. Charging someone a monthly membership to have access to content versus selling them a product on a tape or CD or DVD was driven by the adult content industry. So technology was the key, but adaptation, use of it, and profitability by the manufacturers of the technology was driven essentially by society and their willingness to embrace adult content. Other innovations that involve technology and our society is how we learn and communicate with each other, how we collect and receive our news, our social interactions, our education, how we teach young people and continuing education, even how we earn a living. Alternative business models that didn't exist previous to the internet, social media, and smart devices that we discussed earlier, virtual businesses that have no brick-and-mortar physical location, whether it's drop shipping or creating online or virtual products or services, working from home, of course, the last few years through COVID, the changes in the work-from-home process, again, driven by society's need to do so and technology's advances to meet that need, thus innovating and disrupting those industries. So where is the balance? 
We'll start with the most obvious place. Start with what is already in a market, what is associated with a product or service in the market, what is valued in it, what people like about it, and then what people don't like about it, what their demands are, what they would like to see different. Or if they have a frustration with what is available to them with no other options. Ask questions internally and then externally. Ask yourself, is this something that can be changed by offering a feature or creating a differentiation in what exists? Or does it need to be a complete paradigm shift in thinking and a disruption industry? Once you ask yourself those questions, you get over the basics into formulating how you can ask those questions to people externally. Ask the audience what it is you want. Ford asked what they wanted. They said they wanted faster horses. But what they do say, faster horses, and what they mean, affordable transportation that could be obtained by the working man, is what they're really asking for. So ask the questions and try to find what they're telling you directly and what that means for their life and values. Challenge all assumptions. The assumptions you have as you start, the assumptions you bring with it, the assumptions that your audience gives you, the assumptions that are in the market already, assumptions that it can or cannot be done, like Elon Musk. Then test all of these ideas, all of these assumptions, all of these theories, all of these hypotheses without assumption. Do not test something assuming it will fail. Do not test something with assuming that it will be the most popular or the most beneficial or the one that will work. Test all of these theories without assumption. Combine your market insights, analysis, intuition, technology, examples from other industries, and follow all of this data with discipline. This is why you have to do this without assumption. If you have assumed the ending, if you assumed what you want your product or service to be before you start, you will simply create what you wanted to anyways. If you work through the process without assumption and with discipline for the data that drives you through your decision-making process, you will end up with something that either will provide what the audience is demanding with a differentiation you can't explain or can disrupt the industry successful because you have found the data that, that backs up your hypothesis and how to translate that into execution because, again, you avoid assumption and are disciplined and you're focused on the data that comes with it, not your personal assumptions. So follow the answers that they give you. Focus on providing the outlet, the answer to the question, the easing of the pain, the solving of the problem but realistic optimism, realistic in can something be obtained? Can you do something that has never been done before? Or can you enter a market with a strong competitor without having a strong enough differentiation or disruption potential? But with optimism, realistic, but optimistic, realistic optimism, because without optimism, you won't take a chance, you won't take a risk, and real benefit comes from taking risk. So the key is, is it innovation or differentiation? The balance is, are you truly being innovative or are you truly finding a simply different version of what exists? If you can do one or the other with certainty because you've followed the data with discipline, you've avoided all assumptions, then the balance is 
your answer will be driven by the data, by the audience market potential, not by preconceived notions, not by how we've always done it, and not by being trapped in the traditional ways of doing things when a new, better, or different way is available. Thanks for listening to Professional Balance, bonus content series of the Saturday Morning Hustle podcast. I'll be back next month with a new topic and new podcast every Saturday with hustle and motivation advice from the office while competition is still sleeping. Please subscribe, leave a review, and make a comment on social media about what balance issues you would like to hear discussed in this series in the future. Thanks for listening. Saturday morning hustle. Saturday morning hustle. Saturday.